Uh, we are starting a brand new series today, and it's called Peculiar People. Peculiar People. Don't you dare look at your neighbor. That's, that's not what I'm talking about. Um, peculiar People, that's something that uh, we, we all are probably pretty familiar with in some way. Like, you're going to go to work tomorrow, and uh, probably many of you work with people that you would consider rather peculiar. Um, and, you know, we maybe family reunions, give you an example of peculiar people. Um, We certainly could take a trip to Washington, D.C. and find lots of peculiar people. Um, There are all kinds of examples of of what we would say peculiar people uh, all around our lives, always have been. The peculiar people as it relates to the church and, and Christians, which we're going to be focusing on throughout this series, uh, it actually, that phrase comes from the old King James translation of 1 Peter 2.9. Uh, and in the King James, that says, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people. Now, that actually means uh, a people of God's own possession, a special people, uh, God's special Possession. It, it doesn't really mean strange or weird or, or odd like we would think of with peculiar. Um, it's meant to convey that the church is a unique institution. It's set up and set apart by God. And in that sense, we should stand out. Absolutely. We should stand out from the rest of the world. Um, there should be something undeniably different about Christians, undeniably different. And so in that sense, it works. And because true Christians are set apart by God and should stand out for him, and and in contrast to the rest of the world, we should be marked by holiness, and that should make us unique. So in that sense, peculiar works. And it's because we are God's special possession his special called out ones, uh, that we should be different. So peculiar people, we're going to be looking throughout this series in First Peter, the, the first epistle that Peter wrote, of what that means. What does that look like to be holy? What does holiness involve? What does it require? And how far should it go? Uh, is it to be there always no matter what, or is it okay as long as circumstances are, are good? Are we to be holy as long as it's easy and comfortable and fitting and, and all of that, or is it something that should define us no matter what, period? So we're going to be looking in to First Peter, and we're going to be talking about what it means and what it looks like to be peculiar people, which we are called to be. That's a big part of holiness, and that's what we're called to do. So with that in mind, I want you to look with me, please, at 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to just focus in on the first two verses today. 1 Peter 1, 1 through 2. 1 Peter 1, 1 through 2. I will be reading from the CSB translation, just so you can know that as you follow along in your copy of God's Word. And if you have it digitally and you're using an app, you can go right to that translation uh, in a drop-down menu of whatever app you're using. So the CSB is where I will be reading from. And uh, let's dig in together. 1 Peter 1, first part of verse 1 says this. This is who wrote this 
epistle, and I mean, it's not that hard to figure out. If it's called First Peter, you can imagine Peter wrote it, right? And that's exactly right. So for the first part of verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So he's giving an introduction. He's saying, this is from me, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. That right there, that, that title, an apostle, the fact that Peter is able to be an apostle, that he is writing this letter to the church towards the end of his life. He doesn't have that much time left. Um, he's most likely in Rome, and he's most likely already experiencing some persecution that was starting to ramp up. And he, at, at this point, has already been a pillar in the early church. He's been a leader in the early church, instrumental in its growth and its development and in its strength. And that should stand out to us because prior to this, prior to him writing this epistle, prior to Peter being uh, rightly called an apostle, a leader in the church, a pastor, a representative of Jesus, a shepherd. Prior to all of that, what do we know about our dear friend Peter? Well, we know a lot. And we know that Peter was really, really good at putting his sandal in his mouth. He was really, really good at at being very reactive. He was very good about, with all of his passion and fervor and fire, which is a good thing, in certain ways and in small doses. He was really good at taking that passion and that fervor and getting himself into a lot of trouble. Um, for example, one of my favorite episodes in, in the account of Jesus' ministry in Peter's life uh, as one of his disciples, one of my favorite accounts is when Jesus gets his disciples together, and this is soon, not, not too far removed from the cross. Soon he would go to the cross, he would die, and he was letting them know that. And he said, hey, guys, who are people saying I am? You know, you're, you're out there in the midst of, of the community. What are you hearing about me? And so some of the disciples spoke up and they said, well, you know, some, some say that you are John the Baptist back from the dead. Some say you're Elijah or one of the other prophets. And Jesus says, okay, you, you guys, who do you say I am? Nobody said anything. Except Peter, of course, Peter would speak up. And he said, well, you, Jesus, you are the Messiah. You're the promised one. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. That's who you are. I don't, I don't really know what all these other people are thinking. I don't care. I know who you are. You are the promised Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, Peter, that's great. You've got it. And that's not just from you. My Father has given you that conviction. He's given you that realization about who I really am. Blessed are you, Peter. And on the the rock of that statement, on the truth of that statement about me, I'm going to build my church. And not even the gates of hell will be able to overcome it. And then, if it had stopped there, that would have just been great. But Jesus then went on in that account, and he said, Now, I want you to understand something. The way I'm going to build my church is not what you would hope for or what you would expect. The way I'm going to build my church is I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be arrested and tried and killed. 
that's actually how I'm going to build my church. You know, because I'm going to die a real death, and I'm going to rise from the dead, and I'm going to start my church. But Peter took Jesus aside and said, Jesus, come here a second. Remember, he had just said, you are the promised Messiah, the Son of the living God. And and Jesus is saying, yes, and I, I am the Messiah, and because I'm the Messiah, I've got to go die. Peter took Jesus aside and said, I'm not going to let that happen to you. And actually, in the, in the literal Greek, the, the force of his statement was, you will not do that. You will not do that. I forbid it. And Jesus looks at Peter and actually says, get behind me, Satan. Get out of my way, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God, but only human interests. Wow, how the mighty have fallen in the course of a single conversation. And then there are other examples. I mean, you remember the, the sword chopping incident when you know, they were in the garden and Jesus was about to be arrested and Peter had the sword and he went and he, he slashed and I'm sure he wasn't aiming for an ear. He was probably aiming for the whole head and he just missed and glanced at the ear and the ear came off and, and Jesus had to rebuke him then. And, and then, of course, there's the tragic uh, denial of Jesus. So... And there's so many other examples. Peter, I mean, for all of the good, he had a whole lot of bad. Uh, where he, he got in his own way, and he got in the way of Jesus, and he, he, he spoke without thinking. Um, there are some not-so-great traits earlier in his life. But when you compare that Peter, the younger Peter, to the Peter that we are able to see right at the beginning of the church... On the day of Pentecost, in Acts, when the church actually was launched. And we have Peter standing up and addressing the entire city of Jerusalem and looking right at the religious leaders and saying, you killed the author of life. And then he preached this amazing sermon and 3,000 people came to Christ in one day. And the church was started. And so we see actually Peter really becoming the rock that Jesus needed him to be, that Jesus used to strengthen the whole church. And that's where he is at the time of of the writing of these letters. He has preached all throughout Jerusalem. He's preached all throughout Asia. He has been instrumental in launching and, and strengthening the church. And so that should give us all really great hope, shouldn't it? I mean, for Peter to do that 180, to go from the, the, the impetuous and, and, and uh, just aggressive and um, overly passionate to a fault, Peter, you know, immature, to the rock that he is now, grounded in the Word, mature in the Word, led by the Spirit, filled with the Spirit, full of love and compassion, mature and, and able to shepherd the church well. That should give us all really great hope. Because I, I don't know about you, although I do know about some of you, but I, speaking for myself, I am a whole lot like Peter. And that's one reason I love Peter's character so much, because I identify with it. And, and it gives me great hope, and it should give you great hope, because Peter 
an apostle of Jesus Christ is proof that anyone, anyone in Christ can change to be like Christ. Change is possible. Don't tell yourself the lie. Don't let the enemy tell you the lie. Don't let anybody else tell you the lie that you can't change. And don't, don't believe that others can't change. Here's the thing. Change isn't possible in and of ourselves by our own effort. Not lasting change, anyway. Not long-term, real change. We can maybe change in little ways for a little bit of time, but lifelong change, life change, and lifelong change, we can't do that on our own. That much is impossible. But for anyone who is in Christ, anyone that has given their life to the living Christ, he gives his spirit to And his spirit takes up residence in our lives, literally. And therefore, every Christian has the full power of God in their lives. So don't let anybody, including yourself, tell you that change is impossible. Oh, I just can't change. You can't change. I can't change. We're just who we are. We're what we are. No, no, not at all. Not if you're a believer, not if you're a Christian. Anyone in Christ can change to be like Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17, one of my favorite verses, I refer to this a lot. Uh, The Apostle Paul writes there, he says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. That's the promise for every single believer. Every single believer in Christ is a new creation. You've been made new. And and in that newness, you have the ability to keep being more like Christ every single day. So that's who wrote this letter. That's his credentials. He's he's not, um, you know, falling back on his own uh, pedigree. This isn't an arrogant thing that he's saying, an apostle. He's letting everybody know... uh, It's not because I deserve this. It's not because I'm just so good. It's all because of what Jesus has made me. It's his grace that allows me to be this and to speak in this way to you. So who is he writing to? Who is Peter writing this this letter to? Uh, We we see that in the next part of verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those chosen. And in some of your translations, it might say, to the elect. It's the same word. To those chosen or elect living as exiles, dispersed abroad in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. That's, that's all Asia Minor. It's likely in the region of, of modern-day Turkey, what we would think of uh, as the country of Turkey. That's where these, these uh, churches and these, these districts, these cities were. And so he's writing to... Uh, Jewish and Gentile Christians that are, that are dispersed all through Asia Minor. Most likely he has been to all of these churches, either as pastor or certainly at, at the very least going through and visiting and spending time with each of these churches. And so he has a personal connection most likely. So these are, this is a mixture of, of Jewish and Gentile Christians living abroad in these areas. And he says, you are, you are chosen. You are elect. You are peculiar. You're called out. You've been set apart 
to the chosen living as exiles in those regions, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. The chosen, the elect, living as exiles, chosen or elect, elected according to, by means of, the foreknowledge of God the Father. What that means for us is this, and this is so amazing and fantastic and magnificent and so profound. It means this, my fellow Christians, here's what that means. This wasn't something limited to just the group of people Peter was writing to. This wasn't just true of the people living in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia. This means for for all of us who are truly in Christ, the Father, God the Father, called us to his Son long before we actually came. The Father, perfect and holy and righteous and just and almighty, all all that we talked about in our last series and all that we talked about specifically last Sunday, God in his glory and his righteousness and his, his perfection looked at us sinners and rebels and dead spiritually and loved us enough to call us to his son for the justification and redemption and salvation that we needed long before we ever actually came. It reminds me of one of my favorite books, The Silver Chair, by C.S. Lewis. And in the silver chair, uh, two other children, not the original four children, two other children are, are in Narnia. Eustace, who had been there already, and he's a cousin of the four main children. And then there's Polly. And so they were, Eustace and Polly were in their, in their school in England. And then all of a sudden, they are whisked away into the land of Narnia. And Eustace gets taken away from Polly. Polly's up on this high mountain. Eustace is, is falling, and she thinks he's falling to his death. Spoiler alert, that doesn't happen. He's okay. But Polly's there on this mountain. And then all of a sudden, Aslan, the great lion, comes up. And making a, a very long introduction, very short, uh, Aslan says, how is it that you came to be here? And she says, I don't know. My friend Eustace and I were, were supposed to, to be looking for some person called Aslan. And we called out to him. We called his name and we said, Aslan, Aslan, Aslan. And then we found ourselves here. And Aslan says, after a few other things, he says, you would not have called to me unless I had been calling to you. That's how Polly and Eustace got into Narnia. It wasn't because she was calling Aslan, Aslan, Aslan. That's what she thought. And that's why he said this. He said, no, you would not have called to me at all unless I had been calling to you. Augustine, great early church father, says this. God chooses us not because we believe, but that we may believe. That is such an important distinction. God chooses us not because we believe, but that we may believe. Here's another 
few statements for you. I just want you to, to really grasp how important this is, how magnificent this is, and, and these quotes really do a great job of explaining um, some, in, in a simple way what is so profound and necessary for us to understand, and it's what, what Peter is saying here. This is from R.C. Sproul, another great theologian and uh, scholar and pastor who is with the Lord now. He said this, God so works in the hearts of the elect as to make them willing and pleased to come to Christ. They come to Christ because they want to. But here's the really, really significant part. They want to because God has created in their hearts a desire for Christ. Charles Spurgeon says this, I believe the doctrine of election because I am quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I am sure he chose me before I was born, or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. Amen to that, right? We should all have our hands up on that one. Yep, that's true of me. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I never could find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. Another amen. Free will doctrine, what does it do? It magnifies man into God. It declares God's purposes null, since they cannot be carried out unless men are willing. It makes God's will a waiting servant to the will of man and the whole covenant of grace dependent on human action. Denying election holds God to be a debtor to sinners. Wow. That's Charles Spurgeon. So, very important quotes and and thoughts around this concept that Peter is saying is absolutely true of the people he's writing to, the Christians, the church, to those chosen or elect, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. But this is not just man's idea. This is not something that's limited, uh, created by and limited to someone like Augustine or R.C. Sproul or Charles Spurgeon or, or others or even Peter or Paul. No, it's not just man's idea. Listen to this. This is from Jesus himself. John 6.37 says this, Everyone the Father gives me will come to me. Everyone the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will never cast out. John 6.37 is that. Now, going on in the same passage, Jesus still speaking, John 6.44, he says this, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. That's Jesus himself. Then Paul, the Apostle Paul, in Romans 8, 29-30, says this, For those he, speaking of God the Father, foreknew, which resonates with and agrees with what Peter is saying, to the chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, we just read that, Paul says here, for those he foreknew, he also predestined 
to be conformed to the image of his son. That was what we were predestined to be, conformed to the image of his son, like Jesus. Wouldn't, he wouldn't do that if it weren't possible, right? It's possible to be made like Jesus. In fact, those who are in Jesus were predestined to be that, to be like Jesus, to be conformed to the image of his son. Why? So that, here's the purpose of it, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. That doesn't mean literally firstborn. That, that's a, a statement of, of rank and of importance. A preeminent one really is what that's saying. The firstborn among many brothers and sisters, and those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. We talked about that in our last series, declared righteous before God. And those he justified, he also glorified. So the glory we lost in the garden was restored to us by the work of God in and through Christ. And it's a work that began long before we were ever born, long before we made any commitment to Christ. Ephesians 1, 3 through 6 says this. Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. It's Paul here too. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ, Verse 4, for he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And what did he choose us to and, and toward and for? To be holy and blameless in love before him. Peculiar, peculiar people. He predestined us to be adopted predestined us to be adopted as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ for himself according to the good pleasure of his will, not because we deserve it or are worthy of it, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. That, my friends, that my fellow Christians, that is what it means to be in Christ. All of that. That's what it means to be in Christ. And that's what Peter is addressing here in this opening statement of this magnificent letter. That's who he's writing to, and he's reminding them, you are chosen by God. Not by me, not by yourself. You're chosen by God himself. He called you out. He elected you to to be his family. He elected you to Christ to save you and to make you his very own children. This was all according to his foreknowledge, not anything you've done, not anything you've said. It's all him. It's all a work of God. And that's what it means to be in Christ. But, but, as great as that is, Being in Christ doesn't make us immune to suffering for Christ. Being in Christ doesn't make us immune to suffering for Christ. 2 Timothy 3.12 tells us, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Sorry. I didn't make that up. I didn't come up with that. That's, that's what God's Word says. 
Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ, Jesus will be persecuted. In other words, um, God choosing us to place us in Christ and, and giving us all that is, is in Christ and the adoption that is through him and, and the eternity that awaits us, all of that doesn't mean that we are going to be guaranteed a cushy, comfortable experience in the Christian life. Quite the opposite. The Christian life, as great as it is, I mean, indeed, it is the greatest life possible, but as great as it is, it is also the hardest life possible, the hardest life to live. Not only do we have to contend with our own flesh, not only do we have to contend with our own still-present sinfulness, and that's hard enough, but then we are going to be met with opposition in some form. We're going to be met with hostility in some way. And we might even face actual, true, literal persecution. And the longer our Savior remains, you know, and tarries and and doesn't come, the longer that happens, the more time marches on, the likeliness that we will experience actual persecution, that likeliness goes way up. So being in Christ doesn't make us immune to suffering for Christ. And that was certainly true of Peter's readers. Back to the other part of verse 1. He said, I'm writing to you, the the chosen, the, the elect, living as exiles, dispersed abroad. In other words, you're you're not in Jerusalem where this all started. You're not where you wanted to be. You're not where it's comfortable. See, persecution had started to ramp up. Persecution had started to become a real thing. And that's why Christians were dispersed. They were exiled. They were, they were cast out. They were experiencing hostility. They were already starting to suffer. So this was certainly true. The fact that in being in Christ does not make us immune to suffering for Christ. That's something that these people were, were well acquainted with, well aware of. And so the reason Peter is reminding that group of people, these readers, that their relationship with Jesus came about because of the gracious, sovereign election of God the Father was to fill them with hope and strength and endurance and and purpose in the midst of the opposition, in the midst of the hostility that they were experiencing, in the midst of their difficult circumstances. He was reminding them of their calling. He was reminding them of the reality of their salvation. What happened to bring that about so that it would fill them with hope and joy in the midst of all that? And that should do the same for us. Everything we've read just in these these brief verses to this point, everything I've said to you already in this message, all that is true of us along with the original readers of this letter it should do the same thing for us. It should fill us with hope and joy and strength and purpose in the midst of all of our difficult circumstances, in the midst of whatever hostility that you might be faced with, in the midst of whatever opposition comes your way, this should be your anchor. And and here's what else this should do. This is what should be, be true of us. All of this is not just theological. It's very practical. Please understand that. All this talk about uh, 
the being chosen, being, being elected by God's sovereign grace, it's, it's meant to be very practical, not just theological. And that's why Peter was reminding his readers of this, because they needed a practical reminder in what they were dealing with, and it should be the same for us. Here, here's what it means. We need to base our whole identity on what God has done for us and made true of us. We need to base our whole identity on that, Christians. All that is, all that is true of us from the work of, of grace by God in our salvation. All that has been said in this passage and the other passages I read to you that Jesus himself said and what Paul wrote about. All that means that we need to base our whole identity on what God has done for us and what he has made true of us. We shouldn't base our identity on who we used to be, all that we were, all the mistakes and failures that we made and that we did. We shouldn't base our identity on all that is good in us. We shouldn't base our identity on on our profession, on on what we have in terms of of a position at work. We shouldn't base our identity on who our family is. We shouldn't base our identity on our various roles in life. We shouldn't base our identity on what we have or what we maybe don't have and wish we did. We shouldn't base our identity on our hopes and our dreams and our goals. Our whole identity, everything we are, everything that makes us us, should be based entirely on what God has done for us and made true of us. And I hope that's true of you today. So how did all this come about? All this amazing truth, this glorious grace, and this indescribable salvation. How did all this come about? How were we made recipients of this amazing grace and work of God the Father? Well, Peter tells us that too. He told his original readers and and he he would tell us as well. It's in the second part of verse 2. So recapping, he wrote to the chosen exiles dispersed abroad and in all the regions of Asia Minor, and he tells us how they were, were chosen into this great salvation, how God the Father brought them into it, how he made them adopted and gave them this hope and this this strength and this joy and this purpose. The second part of 1 Peter 1, 2. Through, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. That's how this all came about. You're chosen by God the Father according to his foreknowledge long in eternity past, long before you were even born. He called you to come to Christ at some point in your life made you his own, gave you all the promises, gave you glory, made you right with himself. How? Through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. What does sanctified mean? It means set apart, called out, peculiar. Through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. For what purpose? Why, why did he do that? What is the purpose of that sanctifying work? Also there in verse 2. To be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus 
Christ. So you're, you're chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. So along with what was said about the Father at the beginning, now looking at what he says about the Holy Spirit's work and then what he says about Jesus, his atoning work, that's what he means by being sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. It's a reference to his atonement, which we covered in great detail last week. Along with all of that, if you take that all together, you know what that shows us? It shows us that the whole Trinity is involved in our salvation. The whole Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, working in unison to bring about your salvation and mine. If that doesn't fill you with awe and joy and gratitude and worship, then you need to evaluate if you are truly in Christ. Because that should just knock your socks off. That the full Trinity was involved in your redemption and in your adoption. That's who you are in Christ. Focusing in on that last statement there uh, that I just read, to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ, what does that really mean? What, what bearing does that have on us? Well, 1 John 1, 7, the Apostle John says this, If we walk in the light as he himself, as God himself, is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. That's what Peter is referencing the perpetual cleansing that is made available to us by the blood of Jesus. So the blood of Jesus that he shed on the cross, that's what what saves us, that's what reconciled us, that paid that ransom price to make us redeemed, to make us justified. That's what brought us into salvation. But after salvation, because we are still in this skin, you know, this flesh that is still so dominated by sin, We need perpetual cleansing. We need perpetual uh, forgiveness. And that's made possible, made available by the constant covering of the blood of Jesus. See how that works? It's initially at salvation and then ongoing throughout our sanctification. And that's what what, uh, Peter referenced here. And that's what John was talking about in his epistle. So taking all that together... What is said in, in the previous statements that Peter made in one, verses 1 and in the previous parts of verse 2, all of that results in this, he, what he says in the closing statement of verse 2. Look at that with me. First Peter 1, 2, the very end, very end of that verse. In light of all of that previously said, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Grace and peace. Aren't those good words? We all long for that. We all want that. We all need that. We all look for it. Grace and peace. And that comes, listen, church, that comes only from God. Grace and peace, the kind we need, lasting powerful grace and peace. It's only possible from God. He's the source of it. 
And Peter is saying, this grace and this peace which is yours in Christ, from God the Father, applied by the Holy Spirit, I, I want that. I'm praying for that to be multiplied for you. I, I don't want it to be a one-and-done thing. I want you to constantly experience this grace and this peace as you go forward in your walk with Christ, in your relationship with God. You're going to need it, is what he's really saying. In all that's ahead of you, and all that you're going to face, and all that you're going to deal with, you're going to need that grace and peace to be multiplied. We need that too. We need the grace and peace of God to be multiplied in our lives. And that's available. It's available, church. It's available to you in Christ because of him. It's what the whole Trinity did. The way that we were called to God, given a personal relationship with him, and a personal purpose from him. And that's what we're going, we're going to continue to see and unpack as we go forward in the series. So this was all just the introduction. This should let you know how great this letter is. I cannot wait to go through this with you, and I hope you're excited as well. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your work. Thank you for the amazing work of redemption, of salvation. Thank you that though we could never, ever be worthy of your calling us, you did. If we are in Christ today, it's because you called us to him. You gave us the desire for Christ that we did not have of ourselves. You gave us the faith to believe in the person and work of the Lord Jesus that we did not have ourselves. You did it. Our salvation is 100% a work of yours, God from start to finish and everything in between. We brought nothing to it ourselves except our need for it. Thank you for saving us, those of us who are saved. And Father, for those that have not yet accepted that call, the call to salvation, to adoption, the call to repent, the call that has gone out to them, those that have not yet responded in faith, I pray, oh, I pray, Holy Spirit, awaken them to their need of the Savior. Awaken them. Awaken in them the faith they need to put in Jesus as the only source of their salvation. Give them the desire and the willingness to come to Christ who gave his life for them. Thank you for your work, O oh God, your amazing work of grace. May we be different because of it. May we live for you in response to all that you've done for us and made true of us. In Jesus' mighty name I pray, amen.